You are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. Hey, good morning, family. My name is Josh. I'm actually the lead pastor here at Refuge. Uh, and then if you're new, if this is your first time with us, Refuge is a church plant in Southeast Austin, serving the whole South Austin area. Uh, man, we would love to share more about who we are. So I encourage you to jump into the video description, click the connect page and connect with us, man. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, and man, just get a chance to pray for you. Now, uh, if you call Refuge home, if you're with us week in, week out, then you could probably tell that things look a little different. Don't worry, we're still in Casa Guerrero here. Uh, we're just trying to kind of upgrade a little a few things, trying to make it a better experience for everybody. Don't lose focus. Rather, I want to encourage you to focus in because I'm excited that we're continuing our sermon series in Acts today. Okay, we're going to be picking up in chapter 5. And I'm super excited, y'all, because like, Man, preparing this week, this text really hit different for me this week. Like, you know, as I mentioned, and as most of you know, Refuge is a church plan. What that means is that Refuge is a brand new church. And if that's still a little hazy, let me kind of paint a visual picture for you to understand what I'm saying. Right? Refuge is a, we're made up of a small team, right? Less than 40. Uh, they come from two more established churches. We, we, we don't really have any money. We don't have a building. Okay, that's why we're recording in people's houses and stuff like that, right? Uh, man, on top of that, the area we're planting in is a little bit different than, than what other places try to plant in, right? We're, we're planting uh, in an area known as Dove Springs. It's like a working class, minority, majority, a kind of inner city area, man, that we love, but, but doesn't have a lot of money as well. And in addition, are, is not really familiar with church, right? Statistically, there's only 4.5 churches per 10,000 residents here. And most of those churches are smaller churches similar to ours. And so if you were going to summarize that, you'd be like, oh, this is a, a small church with not a lot of money that don't have their own building, it doesn't have its own building, uh, in an area where there's not a lot of money and people aren't really familiar with church. You guys are crazy, right? From the outside looking, I can see somebody like, you guys are crazy. And you know what? Let me be honest. Maybe we're crazy, right? Maybe we're crazy. But, but the aim of planting this church is not so that we can have money or have a building, uh, man, or, or be in a nice area or reach people that are already familiar with church. But rather, the aim of planting this church, and I pray every church, is that we would actually do the work of seeing people come to know Jesus through how we serve, love, and care for the community. Okay, it's about seeing Jesus exalted. It's about doing gospel ministry. Okay, I want you to remember that phrase, gospel ministry, because that's what we're going to be talking about today. Okay, and gospel ministry is the work of sharing the gospel in word and deed, seeing Jesus valued in people's hearts and that changing their lives. It's why our mission statement says that our aim is to make disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. That's what planting a church is about, seeing people come to love Jesus. It's about gospel ministry. But let me be honest, gospel ministry can be hard. Okay, oftentimes it's easier to focus on the quote-unquote funner parts of, of church life, like dope worship music, hanging out with people that we love from church, uh, rather than doing gospel ministry. And though those things are good, and they are beneficial, they're godly, they're not necessarily gospel ministry. Okay, gospel ministry oftentimes involves being uncomfortable rather than comfortable. 
Uh, it involves spending time with people that are broken rather than spending time with people that are healed. And this is probably the most real one, right? It always, not often, but always involves relying on Jesus more than we're relying on ourselves, our friends, or our things in order to bring us joy. Yet the joy that we receive when doing gospel ministry isn't like any type of joy that we get from anywhere else. And in today's text, Acts is going to give us a look at what gospel ministry looks like, okay? Uh, for the author of Acts, it's basically going to be like a 30-verse summary of what we can expect gospel ministry to look like in our lives. And this is my hope for today's text, that, that it would really allow us to think through our personal relationship with gospel ministry, how we're interacting with gospel ministry on a personal level, okay, and how from there we're able to use that experience to offer that same ministry, that same care to other people. Today's sermon is entitled, It Takes One to Know One, okay, because we are ultimately going to see that the only way we can fruitfully do gospel ministry, plant this church, love and care for people, um, is when we are experiencing gospel ministry for our own self in our own lives, okay? Let's say that again, that the only way we can fruitfully do gospel ministry is when we are experiencing gospel ministry in our own lives. Let's go ahead and dive in. We're going to be picking up in Acts chapter 5, verse 12. We're actually working our way through 42, and so that's a lot of text, but we're really going to hit the high notes rather than going verse by verse. We're going to kind of check out the thrust of the story, and there's a reason for that because our, our verse today, our text today is really like a sequel or a reboot to something we covered, uh, man, like a few weeks ago in Acts chapter three, chapters 3 and 4, okay? Um, and while that story takes place over the course of two chapters, this one really takes up only 30 verses. It's like a summary. And I believe Acts does this for a reason, because while reading Acts chapters 3 and 4, we have a lot of things that we can check out and things that we can uh, uh, kind of focus in on. In, in our text today, in, in Acts 5, 12 through 42, it really shows us more specifically in the summary, this bigger picture uh, of what doing gospel ministry looks like in the life of the apostles and in the, our lives personally. Okay, and so with that being said, we're going to focus on three points to really navigate our conversation about gospel ministry. And those three points are this. One, that gospel ministry blesses the broken. Okay, it blesses the broken. Two, that gospel ministry opposes the proud. It opposes the proud. And three, that gospel ministry encourages the minister. It encourages the minister. Uh, that's you and me, all right? It ain't just about me in the minister. You're the minister too. So let's go ahead and jump into how it blesses the broken. And we're going to park here for quite a while, okay? We're going to park here for, for quite, a, quite a little bit. So go ahead and settle in uh, and let's work through this. We're going to start in verses 12 through 16 of Acts chapter 5. And it goes like this. Starting in verse 12, many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, but the people spoke well of them. Believers were added to the Lord and increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women. As a result, they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might, might fall on some of them. In addition, a multitude came together from the towns surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Okay, so our text 
kind of drops us into this scene where all it's like a crazy scene, right? The apostles are healing people. People are coming to faith. Uh, man, it's just this, and they're doing miracles. It's this intense moment. And on the surface, it, it looks like pandemonium. But, but really, when we start digging in a little bit more, we start to see that Acts actually has something even more incredible that, that it wants to show us. God wants to show us something even more unique than just that wild scene. Okay, so you remember how I told you that this is really like a reboot of chapters three and four, and this is actually a great example of that. Because if you look back at chapter four, one of the main things that we saw, okay, was that when Jesus, when John and Peter were arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin, they noticed that they had been with Jesus. The religious leaders knew these guys had been with Jesus. Okay, so check out verse 13 from chapter 4. It says, When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. Okay, that's really important to remember because Acts is going to show us something right here that's going to shape how we see gospel ministry. Okay, in, in, in chapter 4, the evidence of the apostles spending time with Jesus was how they read and interpreted and applied scripture, how they used the Bible. But here in Acts chapter 5, what we're beginning to see is that the evidence of the apostles spending time with Jesus is actually how they begin to minister and care for people. What Peter is doing here isn't something that he made up. Rather, this is just what he saw Jesus doing. Okay, so check out the, the check out the image on your screen. I want us to take a look at Matthew 4, 23 through 24, verses Acts 5, 12 through 16. Okay, I'm going to read the Matthew part. Now, Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon possessed, the epileptics, the paralytics, and he healed them all. Does it sound familiar? You see that? You see how familiar that is? Man, the apostles weren't making this stuff up. They were actually just doing what they had seen Jesus doing when Jesus was loving, caring, and, and, and healing people. Okay, this is not meant to show us the uniqueness of the apostles. Rather, it's meant to show us the uniqueness of Jesus, the same Jesus that you have and the same Jesus that I have. Okay, this is what it looks like for Jesus' people to have spent time with Jesus. Okay, and this would have been, yes, an amazing scene, but, but also I want you to remember that this would have been a weird scene as well. Because remember that in this culture, the lame, the sick, the broken, man, they were all considered the outsiders, right? People shunned by a society that believed if you were hurting, if you were in pain, if you were suffering, then you must have sinned in some way and God must be opposing you. But that's not how Jesus saw it. Jesus didn't see it that way. Okay, like, like, think about it. Religious leaders often question Jesus about why he was eating and hanging out with sinners and sick people. Think about Luke 5, 30 through 32, where it says, But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the lifestyle the apostles learned while they were with Jesus. 
this sense of care and compassion and grace to those who were marginalized and on the edge of society and suffering is what they picked up when they were with Jesus. And it didn't, ma- it didn't matter what anyone else said around them. It didn't matter what anyone else thought about what they were doing. They had seen that Jesus had done it. And the reality is that their lives were shaped by Christ, not by culture. Okay, I'm going to say that again, man, their lives, because they had spent time with Jesus, were shaped by Christ, not by culture. So how they loved was shaped by Christ, not culture. Who they loved was shaped by Christ, not culture. Who they spent their time with was shaped by Christ, not culture. Okay, when Jesus, when we have spent time with Jesus, it begins to form and shape our lives to have a heart for what Jesus has a heart for, to hate what Jesus hates, to be burdened by what Jesus is burdened with. Okay, now I want to pause here because I, I know that for you right now, you might be thinking to yourself, so you're telling me that if I spend time with Jesus, my, my shadow's going to heal some people? Probably not. Let me be honest with you, probably not. But what I am saying, okay, is that the evidence of our time with Jesus is often the healing that, take place, that takes place in the people that are spending time with us. Okay, I'm going to say that again because we need to hear that. The evidence of our time with Jesus is often the healing that takes place in the lives of the people that are spending time with us. Okay, the people of Jesus should carry this same type of healing presence with them that Jesus carried. People should feel that same type of care and healing that people felt being around Jesus those 2,000 years ago. But there's only one way that this happens, that we begin to carry this type of healing presence. And, and yes, it's spending time with Jesus, but, but it's not just spending time with Jesus. It's really how we spend our time with Jesus. Okay, in short, the only way we're able to extend this sense of healing is when the brokenness in us has been touched by the healing hand of Jesus. The reality, friend, is that I cannot offer a hope I don't know. And I cannot extend a care that I've not experienced, man. If we're to live in a way that displays the healing power of Jesus, we have to be experienced with the healing power of Jesus. We have to know what it's like to pour out our heart to God, okay, in anguish and in pain and know what it is to feel his spirit begin to to care for us spiritually and emotionally. We have to know what it is to mourn our sin and our failures, but then to be met by the tidal wave of grace that comes from Jesus. We have to know what it's like to look at ourselves in the mirror and experience that discouragement, that disappointment, that frustration, but be met by the encouraging truth that because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we are accepted by God even in the midst of our our, our lives and our, our shortcomings. It's these interactions with God, these interactions uh, of our brokenness, meeting his grace and healing in our own lives that really fuels our ability to offer that grace to someone else. And the reason for that is because gospel ministry blesses the broken. Okay, gospel ministry really takes off in in an environment where people understand their need, their brokenness, their hurt. Okay, it makes an impact when we recognize our our brokenness and what the gospel means to our brokenness. I mean, just look at our text, man. Check out the text. 
right? In the text, man, the gospel is taking off, but look at where it's taking off from. It didn't start in the palaces of Rome and make its way down to the streets of Jerusalem. It started in the streets of Jerusalem with the broken and trickled its way up to the palaces of Rome. If we were to think about this in the context of Austin, the gospel doesn't start in the governor's mansion downtown and make its way to Dove Springs. It starts in communities like Dove Springs and makes its way to the governor's mansion. Okay, and the reason for this, the reason for this is because, man, the, the gospel, uh, man, the gospel, when we understand our need for Jesus, everything he offers, everything he offers is so much clearer. Right, right. Think about it, man. When we understand our deep need for Jesus, the joy, the hope, the forgiveness that he offers us, man, is worth more than silver or gold. It's worth more than anything else that we could get. I, I love, check this out, I love the way Tony Morita, a Bible scholar and pastor, says it. Uh, he says, do you approach Christ as one poor in spirit? That's an important question because we must come to Jesus helpless and in need of grace. We can't approach Jesus in a middle class spirit as if we could take care of ourselves without him, but are nonetheless hoping to ensure uh, his assistance as a backup plan. We come poor in spirit or we don't come at all. Mm. Man, while preparing this section, it actually made me think about my son, Jude. Um, some of you guys know him. He's asleep in the other room. And so if he cries, that's what it is. Uh, but yeah, he, uh, you know, he, he, he's getting to the point where he can almost walk, but he can't quite walk. He can crawl and he stands okay, but he's just short of walking. Uh, and as a result, there are oftentimes moments where he like can't reach something, he can't grab something, and he used to just get really frustrated and just start crying, but he's getting to the point now where he's starting to realize like, man, if, if I can't do something, I can go to those huge people that are always carrying me and, and they'll probably get it for me, right? He's starting to understand our role as his parents, and so now he's starting to bring his inadequacy, bring his struggle and his anger and his frustration to us, expecting us to, to, to really love him and to walk with him through it. But in the midst of that kind of tender reliance, that beautiful thing that's happening, something else is also happening. As he comes to us, as he spends time with us, as he brings um, in his life, his, his little struggles with him to us, man, he's starting to become like us as well. You see, as he continues to spend time with us, now when his mom makes a funny face and shakes her head, he starts to make a funny face and shake his head. Okay, when, when, when he's playing with his sister and me and, and we're, we're kind of all laughing and we start making like a shrieking yell, he starts making a shrieking yell with us while we're all having fun. Unbeknownst to him, as he depends on us and spends time with us, he's also becoming like us. And similarly, when we spend time with Jesus, when we bring our brokenness to Jesus, we start to become like him. As we experience the love of Jesus in the gospel, in gospel ministry, in our own lives, we begin to share that love with those around us. And friends, man, this is critical. I don't want to harp on this, but, but, but I, I need us to understand this because there's, there's a ton going on in our world right now. Man, there's a ton going on in our community right now. And the only way we're going to be moved, okay, to push back darkness and to bring healing and to bring the gospel is when we spent time with Jesus and we brought our brokenness to him. That's the only way we're going to impact the things that are going on in our world. 
The only time, the only way we're going to be mourned and, and enraged by another video of an unarmed black man killed in the streets and systems of injustice that oppress people is when we are actually spending time with the one who was hung on a tree for everyone to see so that me and you could live. Okay, the only time we're going to be moved to stop injustice in any way necessary and in any way possible is when we spent time with the one that laid down his life so the rampage of sin and death could be stopped in our own lives. Okay, we're not going to go, the only way we're going to go out of our way to serve the nearly 4,000 people jobless in the 78744 area because of COVID is when we have spent time with the one who left the splendor of heaven in order to enter the brokenness of our world so that me and you could have a way out of brokenness and into light. Those are the only ways that we're going to actually learn and understand what it means to do gospel ministry that blesses the broken. But we have to first bring our own brokenness to Jesus and know what it feels like to be loved by him. Okay, I got to move on. But, but really, really quick, one of, the, one of the things that opposes, one of the things that, that oftentimes stops us, though, from bringing that brokenness is, is really our own pride. Right, oftentimes the thing that stops us from bringing that brokenness, that shame, that regret is our own pride. And that brings us to our second point, man, that the gospel ministry opposes the proud. Check out verse 28 through 33. It says, didn't we, we the religious leaders, strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him, kill them. Man, this verse shows the stark difference between uh, the, the broken response to the gospel and the proud response to the gospel. Okay, so check out verse 31 again. God exalted this man to his right hand and his ruler and savior, as ruler and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Okay, we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Notice why they wanted to kill him. Okay, check it out. Then the apostles told them that they had to obey God, not them, and that their theology was messed up, that they had it wrong, they needed to ask for repentance, right? right? They're, they're, they're making much of Jesus Okay, and, and this is really why they, they want to kill the apostles. And this may not seem like a big deal to you, right? Them saying that to these guys may not seem like a big deal to us, but in this culture, this would have been huge, like a huge slap in the face, especially to a group like the Sadducees. Okay, because the Sadducees, this group was like a religious elite of the time, a social elite, a political elite. In their own mind, their word was the final word. And man, in their mind, they had pretty good reason to think so. Okay, like, like legitimately, let's just take a look at a couple of details about them. When it came to like ceremonial religion, man, they were perfect. That's not saying they had perfect hearts, but rather when it came to the act of, of religious obedience, okay, to laws and traditions, they were spotless. In addition, these men were well-educated and probably the most educated in the entire culture. 
right? They consider themselves the most refined and the most progressive theologically. And in addition, the Sadducees were wealthy. Man, they didn't need for anything. So you can imagine how enraging it would be when these two young bucks, because remember, the apostles are like 20, mid-20s, right? Maybe 30, come in and are basically like, look, man, you got it wrong. You need forgiveness. Jesus is worthy and resurrected. Repent and believe. Man, when, when this type of thing keeps happening, it really starts to rub against the pride that has really built up their self-identity. And so what's actually at root, the thing that's fueling their desire to kill the apostles is really their own pride. And now when it comes to us, I'm, I'm hoping that none of our pride is driving us to want to kill anybody. And if it is, I want to encourage you, keep that to yourself. No, I'm just kidding. You should bring it to me. Let's talk it out, that, all that good stuff. Um, but man, our own pride can often, maybe it's not wanting us, driving us to kill somebody, but, but it can often, right, uh, cause us to reject the love and care that Christ desires uh, to give us similarly to how the Sadducees pride did. You know, think about it like this. Maybe you don't think you're perfect, but maybe you do honestly believe that you're a good person. And, and I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm assuming that actually a lot of the people watching this are probably good people. But rather, the danger, the threat of that confidence is we begin to start to believe, man, that it's our efforts in being a good person that earn us the love of God. Okay, when we start to believe that lie, when we start to place confidence in our own efforts as a good person is when like a teaching like repentance would start to become absolute like ridiculousness, right? Like, like if you believe that your efforts as a good person have already earned you the love of God, then all of a sudden, why do you need to repent of all the little stuff? Because all the big stuff outweighs the little stuff. And that's not the gospel, right? The gospel is that God loves you in the failure and in the success because of what Jesus has done. And just as dangerous, right, is the reality that, man, if, if we have built our, our, our relationship with God on our own uh, efforts and being a good person, then the moment we fail, we don't just lose maybe like in that moment or, 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 or whatever, we also lose the relationship with God that's associated with that effort. And God doesn't desire that for us, right? Maybe you don't consider yourself a religious scholar, man, but, but if we aren't humble enough uh, to, to, to allow the scriptures to inform how we see God, then we can begin to miss who he is, what he's doing, his love of mercy, his love of justice. Let me be very clear. Man, there are swaths of Christians right now still, but man, there are swaths of Christians that are coming out of a time uh, where we could not realize that the God of justice who has made the world and who enacts justice in his character would not desire justice for a group of people in this country that have been suffering for four or 500 years. Okay, even now, there's a group of people that are pushing back, that claim that it's Christian to push back on an idea like Black Lives Matter. Okay, it, it's ridiculous. And often it's because our own closed-mindedness stops us from understanding that maybe there's a part of God that we don't understand. Maybe there's a move of God that we didn't see, but I want to see it. I want to know him. I want to know what he's doing and what he loves and what he hates. Man, that only happens when we're, we're open-minded and saying, God, show me who you are. And lastly, maybe you're not wealthy, right? Maybe you're not rich. Let's say it like that. But maybe you're not, maybe you're not leading for anything. Maybe you have that, as Marita said it earlier, that, that middle, middle class of spirit, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong. Money's not a bad thing. But we have to be careful to not let the absence of financial need deceive us into thinking we lack spiritual need. 
You see, what, what pride does, no matter the areas, it begins to try to put the focus on who we are, the focus on ourselves, and derive hope out of that. When the, the, the saddest part of that is that in fighting to give ourselves hope, we can often lose the hope that God wants to give us. You see, pride fights to find value in who we are while the gospel, the gospel gives us hope in what God is doing, what God has done, what he's going to do, who he is, and that hope never fails us. You see, it's actually because the apostles recognized their need that they were able to understand what they had in Christ in the first place. Think about it. Think about it. Just a few weeks prior to this text, this moment that we're talking about, the apostles were all huddled in a room, scared that they had wasted the last three years following a now dead Messiah. And in that dead Messiah's time of need, greatest time of need, all of them deserted him and ran off scared. In addition, they were probably confronted with the thought that after having spent three years around crowds, seeing people healed, seeing lives changed, they were about to have to go back into the old life they had that maybe was void of hope, that maybe lacked true and meaningful purpose. But when they saw the resurrected Jesus, when they saw the resurrected Jesus able to look at them and say, that shame that you're feeling for deserting me, don't worry about that. I took care of that. You're forgiven. Okay, when they saw the resurrected Jesus and he was able to see that hopelessness, that hopelessness you had, men, don't worry about that because I'm making all things new. When they saw the resurrected Jesus and he was like, man, that purposeness, you, that purposelessness that you felt like you had, man, go and make disciples. Start in Jerusalem and go to the ends of the earth and I'm going to be with you until the end of the age. When they saw the resurrected Jesus, okay, man, they, 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 didn't, they didn't need anything else. Like, think about it. Having had that experience with the risen Christ, what could the Sadducees have given them that they didn't already have in Jesus? Man, man, what could obeying the Sadducees possibly have provided them that they didn't already have in Christ? Man, but the beauty, the only way that happened was because through recognizing our need, it reveals Christ's value. When we recognize our brokenness, it reveals Christ's worth. And when we understand Christ's value and his worth, we begin to be able to offer that value and that worth to other people. And when we're focused on who Christ is, when we're focused on how valuable he is, it no longer matters whether if my life looks perfect or if it doesn't, if I have a nice house or a poor house, if I'm fat or if I'm skinny, if I'm black or if I'm white, or if my marriage is great or if it's not, if my kids are good or if they're bad, none of that matters because the sight, what we're focused on is not on me anymore, but on the resurrection Jesus who is taking my brokenness and making me whole. Man, he's taking my hurt and he's bringing healing. That's the thing that we're focused on. That's the thing that gospel ministry focuses on, the beauty of Jesus. I feel like I've just been hot for like the last like 20 minutes, so I'm sorry about that. All right. Um, but this is important, y'all. It's when this truth settles on our heart. The reality that, man, our brokenness is revealing Christ's value, that, that we have to know the healing presence of Jesus in order to offer and extend the healing presence of Jesus. That puts us in the position to be able to be encouraged by gospel ministry. And that's our last point, that gospel ministry, ministry encourages the ministers. Check out verse 40 uh, through 42. After they called in the apostles, they had them flogged, read flogged as beaten, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. 
Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, that's like Congress, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, I know it sounds like these guys are like masochists, right? Like they're just gluttons for punishment, but I promise you, man, that's not it. Okay, the reality is that when we do gospel ministry, we're able to experience Jesus' teachings. Okay, think about it like this. These same apostles were at Jesus' feet when he said this. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. What do you think it felt like for them when they realized that what Jesus said about them being persecuted actually happened? What do you think, what do you think it felt like when, when all of a sudden the rush of confidence that, you know what? What he said seems like it's actually happening. This moment, even of suffering, is a beautiful reminder that what Christ promised is what's going to happen. If they were counted worthy to suffer on behalf of the gospel and of Jesus, they were likewise going to be counted worthy to enter into glory with Jesus. Okay, when we participate in gospel ministry, we're reminded that the promises of Jesus are true. Okay, when we see Jesus changing lives, we understand that the change he's making in our lives is true. When we know his healing power and we see it in other people's lives, we're reminded that what's happening in our lives isn't a fluke, it's real. Okay, gospel ministry encourages the ministers. I want to close by, by sharing a little bit of what came to my mind while I was preparing this week. Uh, and if you know me, then you know that I love history, man. I'm, I'm a... Uh, whether it's ancient history, modern history, I love it all. And, and right now I'm kind of on a colonial American kick. And so I'm reading about the, uh, the Revolutionary War. 1776 is a, boy, as a, as a book that I picked up. Another one is the Alexander Hamilton biography. They've both been really informing a lot of my, my thoughts lately. Um, but man, both books highlight something that is often, I think, misrepresented in television shows and movies. Um, the Revolutionary War was, was maybe the biggest underdog story in history. Okay, you're talking about the most well-trained, well-funded empire in the world in England versus this, I mean, motley crew of farmers, blacksmiths, and merchants in the Continental Army of America. And if you look at television shows, oftentimes what we see is like, they, they picture the American army as like, even though they're kind of like this motley crew, they have these blue uniforms on and all their tents are white and put together, kind of organized. And if you read a little bit, you'll, you'll, you'll realize that that's anything but the truth. Oftentimes, uh, the camps of the American army are described as being uh, these tattered uh, tents that, that looked all kinds of crazy, that were disorganized and, and completely chaotic. Uh, man, with, with very few exceptions, almost every single platoon was filled with drunken men that were getting sick all the time and stumbling over each other, wearing their regular clothes that hadn't been washed in months. I mean, it was a crowded, dirty, chaotic mess. And if you kind of think about it in a modern day visual, almost picture like a refugee camp. It was, it was like a hard existence for a lot of these guys. Yet on various occasions, there, there's letters from British military officials that allude to the sense of fear they had, the, the type of fear that the Americans instilled. And it wasn't because they were better equipped. It wasn't because they had more money or because they were better trained or had a better leader. 
It was because every time they picked up a gun, they knew what they were fighting for. Every time they put together a plan of attack, they had this type of freedom in mind that they, were, that they were striving to work to, that was the end goal that made up for all the hardship and made everything worth it. Then they knew what they were doing everything for, and that made the enemy fearful. If these men who fought for this distorted version of justice that, that, that you know, didn't involve black people, didn't involve women, if these people could be empowered, emboldened by this sense of freedom, how much more us who understand the depths of freedom that we have in Christ, that Christ would come to earth, man, that he would, he would die in our place for our sins so that we who were sinners could be made right with him and could be made right with each other, whether black, white, or anything in between, whether man, woman, no matter adult child that we would be made one how much more can we be filled with passion for a message that declares things like racism human trafficking kids in cages is unjust and give us a platform to stand against evil and injustice how much more for that type of freedom and for that type of beauty But in order for us to passionately push back darkness, in order for us to passionately seek to make much of Jesus, we have to know what it is to be embraced by light. Man, to be able to to offer the hope that Jesus offers, we first have to be acclimated, even just a little bit, with that same hope, y'all. And so before I pray to finish this up, I have a few things that I want to encourage you with uh, to do this week hoping that they'll, they'll kind of help us experience the ministry of Jesus and get us kicked off uh, in that direction or continue in that direction. The first one is I want to encourage you that, man, a lot of what we're talking about you're already doing, like you're planting a church right now. Man, you're planting a church in the context that we listed off at the beginning of this sermon. And so it, that's already evidence that, that what God has been doing in your life is very real. Okay, like, like man, it, it's evident that God has been working in your life because you have joined this team in order uh, to kick things off and to say, man, th- this is what I want to do. I, I want to show people in this community the love of Jesus. That shows that things have already been happening in your life. So I want you to be encouraged by that. Yet Christ is still calling us deeper. And in that depth, I, I want to offer us a few suggestions uh, to help us continue to push deeper. And, and the second one here is, is I want you to invite the Lord to comfort and minister to your heart. I want you to invite him to comfort and minister to your heart and maybe even to repent of the places that you've held back from him. And, and so maybe inviting him to minister to you, to comfort you is through worshiping in a song. Maybe it's uh, inviting a friend to pray for you or maybe it's you going to him in prayer and letting him know what's happening in your heart, letting him know what you're angry about, frustrated about uh, and, and experiencing him coming in and taking care of us emotionally and spiritually. And if you recognize there are places in my heart that I have held back from Jesus, don't feel shame in that. Bring them. There's grace for that. The third is invite someone that that doesn't know Jesus into experiencing God with you. Okay, Um, man, call someone up, text someone, invite them. Say, hey, man, we got church on Sunday mornings. Uh, It's online, so feel free to join me and watch it with me, man. I'd love to talk to you about it afterwards. Something as easy as that. And the fourth is to consider signing up to serve families at Rodriguez. I know that we're in a weird time, and so even a lot of the things I've mentioned in the course of the sermon it can feel like it's like not applicable during COVID. Uh, but this is, a, this is a great opportunity to do all the things that we've talked about during the course of the last few minutes. 
I mean, like all this stuff that we can do by serving families at Rodriguez, many of which are out of work, over 4,000 the last time I checked. We live in, in the community that's the third highest in terms of confirmed COVID cases in the city. I mean, it's critical that we be serving these families right now. And if you're interested in doing that, I want you to go to refugeaustin.com forward slash COVID volunteering. You can sign up, send in your information, and we can get you set up to start volunteering. Okay, so I hope that doing these few things will, will, will uh, kick off or continue a, a sort of rhythm that we have in experiencing the ministry of Jesus, gospel ministry, so that we can share it with others. Uh, and as we deeply understand what it is to be cared by God, we can continue to grow deeper in what it means to care and love others. And so what I want to do is I want to say a quick prayer for us before we head into our time in worship, um, to, in response to the word, um, so that we can kind of prepare our hearts for that, okay? Go ahead and pray with me. Father, thank you so much for this time together. Thank you for your word that shows us what life doing your work is actually like. God, thank you that the only reason we have the opportunity to even talk about what it means to share the hope, to share the joy that that you've given us is because of the reality that you have given us that joy and hope. Because you died on the cross, you extended hope, joy, forgiveness, restoration, redemption to us that we could not afford. And it's only in that name that we have the ability to offer that to anyone else. God, I I pray that we would be moved, that we would be uh, encouraged to to seek after you, to run after you, um, God, and that, that it would be a blessing to us to do that as we encourage and increasingly understand and live in that blessing, that it would be a blessing to others as well. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith.